Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said to him, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly told his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And then he began to show them at that time that he was to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and would be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. How does Simon become Peter? How does Simon, this ordinary, limited, sinful man, become transformed into someone through whom God will change the world? How does Simon become Peter? It is one of the greatest transformation stories in the history of the world. And we love transformation stories, don't we? We love them because we want to be transformed. I remember uh, when I was growing up, I was, I was the, I'm still the eldest of three boys. And my youngest brother, seven years younger to me, Philip, um, he and I would wrestle like most brothers do, and pretty aggressively. But because of the age difference and therefore the size difference and my particular skills with my elbows, I always won any wrestling match we got into. But transformation was coming. Because when Philip graduated high school, he enlisted and went to basic training. And then he came back, and he was literally twice the man he'd been before. And we were in the backyard of my parents' house one day barbecuing, and we were chatting back and forth as brothers do, and you know, it got a little more aggressive, and finally I just said, I've had enough. And I propelled myself towards my brother to begin an adult wrestling match, you know, two grown men. And I assumed, based on personal history, that this was going to end pretty quickly. I thought, it's going to be a little harder now. Within a second, a nanosecond, I was pinned to the ground in a headlock and I could not breathe. But to add to the humiliation, that wasn't the most humiliating part. The humiliation was truly when my mother and my wife began to beg my brother for my life. Transformation. See, we look to this transformation story as we see Peter emerge out of Simon. Simon becoming Peter, the rock. 
And we would be amiss if we read this story and just think, oh, this is just a story about Simon, that particular special guy and his transformation. No, this story is meant to be for the Christian, our story. We are all very Simon-like. We are all very ordinary. We're all very limited and sinful. And yet in Christ, we will be changed. The promise is that we will become more and more the Peters that Jesus calls us to be. See, Simon becomes Peter. Last week we saw it begins with him confessing who Jesus is. As we begin this series on Matthew 16, Jesus is confessed. Peter says, Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He's, he's affirming Jesus as king that Jesus is the son of the living God. This is the God who is not dead like an idol in a temple. This is the living God. And this is who Jesus is. And nothing whatsoever can begin with our transformation if that confession does not happen. But see, what's amazing as the story goes on is now after Simon has confessed who Jesus is, now Jesus turns the table and he will confess who Simon is. What did Simon say? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus immediately say back? You are Peter. Jesus is making a confession, a declaration about who Simon really is. You are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The difficulty is that we struggle to believe Jesus' confession about us. We believe, I mean, it's, it's tough, but we may find ourselves able to say, okay, I believe, like Simon, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but are we able to believe what Jesus confesses of us? Transformation, strength, power, change. You see, what Simon is being told about himself, what Jesus is confessing about Simon is about a new identity. Jesus is confessing that Simon has a new identity, a new persona, a new core. He is not the same because of his confession. But not only does he confess that he's got a new identity, Jesus' confession about Simon is that he has a new industry, a new work, a new focus, a new vision. But not only a new identity and a new industry in Christ, but ultimately that Simon has a new imperishability. And it's a loaded word, and I'll explain it when we get there. But we begin with Jesus confessing that Simon has a new identity. Verse 18, he says, you are Peter. You are Peter. Petros, the rock. It's the language of identity. It's the language of his core inner being. This naming moment happens in Scripture. And we need to have our, our ears and our eyes seeing this and hearing this. You see, in Scripture, when God gives a new name to somebody, it's meaningful. right? You think of Abram back in Genesis 11. He's Abram, Genesis 12, right? which means exalted father, which is kind of ironic because Sarah and Abraham, Abram are barren, childless. But then he will become, with a new name, Abraham, the father of a multitude, and the promise will be given. Jacob, 
right? Jacob, which means the usurper or the one that grasps the heel, will become Israel, which means the one who strives or wrestles with God. These naming moments are about identity. It's identifying who this person is. God is saying, you are not the same. Peter, the rock. Simon, you're not the same. You're now the rock. You're a foundation. You're solid. You're lasting. You're immovable. That is who you are. This is your identity. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, whoever's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But do we actually believe that? Do we actually believe that God in Christ is creating a new work in us? We have a hard time. We struggle with our identity, don't we? We struggle even when someone declares over us what our identity is. Our daughters started new schools this week. So for Sophie Jane, our ninth grader freshman started at Jasper, And as she was choosing her classes, the guidance counselor uh, asked about language. Now, Sophie, Canadian, the suggestion was maybe French and probably advanced French, like honors to French. Let's skip a bit ahead. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. Quote, unquote, my French is terrible. Even though she's had it since kindergarten. My French is terrible. So she goes to class, and what happens in the first day of class? She goes in, and the teacher does what language teachers always do. It drives me crazy. They talk to you in full, long sentences in the foreign language as if you're supposed to know what they're saying. It's a power trip, okay? (laughs) But what happens, normally the students just stand there sort of dumb and don't know how to respond. Sophie responds back en français. The teacher says something else to the class, and again, Sophie responds in French. The teacher looks at her and says, you can't be in this class. (laughs) See, what she realized in that moment, even though we had said to her, listen, you're Canadian and the rest, for any Canadian, by Texas standards, Sophie's bilingual. (laughs) Right? This is her identity. But we struggle with that, don't we? We struggle to embrace the identity spoken over us, and we struggle most with the identity that Jesus speaks over us. You are a new creation. I know you're very Simon. I'm very Simon. But do we believe this new identity? You are Peter. You are the rock. This is your new identity, not because you've earned it, not because you've made it happen, but because a free gift of God has been given to you in Christ. More on that in a second. But see, Jesus not only confesses Simon's identity, you're the rock, you're Peter, he then confesses Simon's new industry, his his new work, his new focus. He says, and on this rock, verse 18, I will build my church. I will build my church. The transformation, this new identity of being Peter, of being the rock, is for a purpose so that Jesus can build his church on him. See, we need to remember that any time the Lord comes and builds new identity in us, it's not just for our sakes, it's for his purposes. Another thing about naming in scripture is when God names something or someone, or when even we name something or someone, that naming act is an act of ownership. It's an act of dominion. I mean, back in Genesis chapter two, When Adam is in the garden, we read 
these words. He's been told that he's to have dominion over the garden, right? He's to be in the lead. This is his. And what happens in verse 19 of chapter 2? Now, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Naming is about dominion and ownership. When, when Jesus comes into our lives and says, you're no longer Simon, you've got a new name, Peter, he's saying, you're mine. As Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You've been bought for a price. The reason that we have this identity is that Jesus can build his new purpose in us, this new industry, this new work, this new focus, being the church in the world. And what's amazing is the work that we're given, the industry, what it means to be the church, it is really summed up in verse 19. That's a greatly controversial verse. But Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And people struggle with what does this mean about you know, the power essentially to bind people or loose people, to free people. And here's kind of, I, I, I don't think it's kind of what it means. This is what I think it means in the world. This is what the effect of this verse 19, binding and loosing gospel ministry in the world looks something like this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Mine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon filled with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is the loosing we're talking about. It is the forgiveness of our sins. It is releasing us into the new life that God has called us to. The work of binding and loosing is the church taking the gospel into the world. The gospel, the good news of God and Jesus Christ, that he has come to rescue us, to save us, to pay the penalty for sin, to rise from the dead, to beat back our greatest foe. This is the gospel. And as the church goes out in the world, what Jesus is saying, this is your industry, in your workplaces, in your homes, in your schools, as you go into the world living out this good news, people are going to either receive it loosed, or reject it and stay bound. For there is no other name under heaven by which a person may be saved. This is the work of the church. This is the industry of the church. This is why we have this new identity for this industry of living out this work, of living out what it means to be the church, gospeling this good news in the world. Which is why, which is why when the church fails, to faithfully live into its mission, it is such a horror. I sat in shock, in shame, with I'm sure the rest of you 
this week as the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out. As we look at this report, nothing new, but to hear again in the Roman Catholic Church in Pennsylvania alone, 300 priests, over 1,000 victims, over 70 years. And we stand horrified. And here's my pastoral response to these kind of moments. And they happen in the Roman Catholic Church. They happen in the Protestant world. Here's the response pastorally. We do three things. First, we join in the world in standing in horror over those acts. And we call them what they are. Secondly, we continue to heighten our screening and oversight to make sure that the most vulnerable are cared for and protected. And finally, not only are we horrified along with everyone else, not only do we continue to always heighten our screening and accountability, finally, we hold everyone accountable. Everyone from the top to the bottom. This is our commitment. The gospel is on display in the world. How many people are not getting loosed this week or this month or this life because of the unfaithfulness of the church? We must pray. We must do better. And we will. This is our industry to live out the gospel in the world, that those who hear the gospel, see it in our lives, hear it in our words, that they will be loosed by Jesus. Because if we're not speaking, if they're not hearing and receiving that gospel, bondage remains. But see, this is what Jesus is confessing over Simon. Simon, you have a new identity. You are the rock. I've made that change in you. And you're changed into the rock. And don't worry, next week we're going to see just how broken rocks can still be. But for now, you're the rock. And I will build my church, this new industry, this new work on you. This is the calling. But see, not only is there a new identity that he confesses of Simon, and not only is there a new industry, but there's a new imperishability. And this makes all the difference. See, verse 18 goes on to say, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's interesting. Literally what Jesus says is the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. This is Hades, the Greco-Roman understanding of the place of the dead, the underworld. And as we saw last week, what's amazing is that the place where Jesus is saying this is at Caesarea Philippi, as verse 13 says. This is Caesarea Philippi with Mount Hermon right in the backdrop. And not only was Caesarea Philippi a picture of Roman imperial dominance, not only was Caesarea Philippi a picture of pagan worship, but specifically among all those pagan shrines, there was the pagan shrine, the Greek god Pan, and by it and with it, a huge cave. And as the shadows of that huge cave mouth there at Caesarea Philippi would cast these long shadows, it was believed those shadows, that cave, was in fact the very entrance to the gates of Hades. 
Jesus is literally standing on the edge of hell as he says this to Peter. I know who you are. I know what I'm calling to you. And I know the power that will come against you. And as I stand here on the precipice of hell, I will tell you, Hades, death shall not overcome this church. Now, when I think of hell, I'm reminded that the hockey season is starting in six weeks. Because... When I think, I think of hockey and I think of hell, and I'm reminded of that time that there was a great border dispute. There's Jesus here on the sort of the territory edge of hell, and there was a border dispute between heaven and hell. And so Satan and God uh, were chatting about how they resolved this border dispute, and Satan said, why don't we have a hockey game and, and the result of the hockey game will sort out the border dispute. And, and God, you know, always being fair, says, now, now, Satan, really, why would you have a hockey game? Don't, don't you realize all of the good hockey players go to heaven? And Satan said, oh, that's okay. We've got all the referees. <laughs> that's what reminds me of hockey season. I don't know why I just said that. That really doesn't really apply. But let me just carry on. Um, Jesus has got the backdrop of hell behind him when he says this. Now, here's what's amazing, is what Jesus is not saying is that things are not going to hurt. He's not saying that the church will not get attacked, that we individually will not suffer. And he's also not saying that we ultimately won't ourselves die. Right? I think of my friends uh, persecuted in northern Nigeria who face down the threat of Boko Haram on a daily basis. I mean, they are literally living out their faith in a place where Hades is coming after them daily. But as you talk to them, they believe this. Hades has got no power over this. Hell can't stop this. Death can't get in the way of this. Not because we're so strong, but because of where he's going. You see, verse 21 says, at that time, he began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You see, the reason that Hades cannot prevail against the church, the reason that death, that enemy, that final enemy that we all fear can ultimately come against us, the reason that we can affirm with Peter that we are now in Christ imperishable is the fact that Jesus goes to Jerusalem to take the sin of the world on his shoulders and to take death in his grip and as our Eucharistic liturgy will say in but a minute, to tread down hell and Satan under his feet. He is victorious. This is what St. Paul means when in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses that imperishable language, that promise. Easter changes everything. Isn't it true that the reason that we fear throwing ourselves into this new identity and this new industry is that we're worried about what's, what it's going to cost us? We're worried about what the effect will be. Will death be nipping at our feet? and overwhelming us? What holds us back from giving into this new identity in this new industry? St. Paul writes these words in the face of the resurrection of the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, I tell you this, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment 
in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable, he kind of goes on here, the perishable puts on imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, he didn't have a sermon clock length here, he then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then here are these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, in your industry of living out the church in the world, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How does Simon become Peter. It begins with a confession from Simon of who Jesus is, the Christ, the son of the living God. But as the story goes on, the next part of this transformation is Simon hearing Jesus' confession about him. You and I, Simon, hearing Jesus' confession about us. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And as I close, isn't it amazing the authority you hear in that confession? I mean, Jesus says that with such authority. Do you hear it? And and, and here's what he doesn't do. Verse 18 does not say, you will be Peter. One day, one day you'll grow into Peter. It's a hope. Maybe if things go well, you will be Peter. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't do the moralistic thing of saying, you should be Peter. Oh, Simon, can't you be a little more like Peter? Can't you be a little more like a rock? Come on, Simon, make it happen. He doesn't say that. He says in the present tense, you are Peter. It's, it's a declaration and it's, it's got the authority. And do you know why it's got the authority? Because not only... Does he have authority because of what verse 16 means, what Jesus has been confessed to be, the Christ, the Son of the living God? I mean, this is the guy that's got all the authority in the heavens and the earth to declare that over you and me. If he says it of us, it's true. But the authority to speak these words is not just because of who Jesus is, but his authority is in this because he's fully aware of what it will cost him to make us into Peter. The authority here is not just because of who he is, but because of what he knows is coming and what he willingly walks into. He has his face, as verse 21 says, set towards Jerusalem. He knows he goes there to bear my sin, Simon's sin, your sin on that cross. He knows that he comes to die my death and Simon's death and your death on that cross and overcome it. He looks at us Simons, limited, broken, sinful, ordinary people, and says they, the cost for their transformation is worth it. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us.
As many of you know, my favorite moment in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, which apparently has a sequel coming out, for those who don't know the full sequel, um, there's a moment. And every year as we carry the cross around campus, when we have our Good Friday moment and, and have procession of the cross, I am always reminded that moment when Jesus, and it's, it's extra biblical, it's not in the biblical story, but man, they're quoting it from Revelation. When Jesus at one point falls carrying that cross and his mother comes to him and he says, quoting Revelation, see, mother, I go to make all things new all things new. He looked at the cost of changing you into Peter and he went. The question is today, will we believe his confession? Will we live into that confession? Will we pray as we come to the table today that we could receive afresh that confession spoken over our lives? For this is the only way that a broken world will be changed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.